Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll begin reading in verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. The apostle says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this gift we call the Bible. This wonderful revelation of yourself. Father, I pray that this morning you would cause us to revere your word as the very words of the living God. Father, give us the ability to set everything else aside, all the concerns, all the cares, all the appointments that we have coming up, all the responsibilities that we shoulder, and simply come before you with open hands and open hearts and say, God, what do you have for me today? Father, I pray that you would soften our hard hearts and help us to bow before you and say, whatever you tell me. I'm going to believe your word. I'm going to obey your commands. And Father, we know that that's only possible through the presence of your spirit. And you promise in your word that where the church gathers, there you are. You're you're in our midst. That's the whole point of this gathering is to serve as a family meeting between our Father and us as your children. And so, Father, I pray that we would feel and know that presence and experience your power as we listen to your word. Lord, we pray the same thing for our brothers and sisters throughout the world, and and especially in our own city. We pray especially for Well of Life Church as they uh, are served by Pastor Guy Weathers this morning as he preaches over there. Lord, I pray that you would fill him with your spirit, anoint him with your power and that you would move powerfully in that congregation who so desperately need to be reminded of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray for Pastor Andrew as he enters the pulpit for the first time as pastor of Calvary Baptist Church of Brevard, North Carolina. Uh, Father, I imagine he uh, is feeling the weight of that at this moment. And so I ask that you would move powerfully in him and through him and that you would do a mighty work of grace that no one expects and glorify your name in that city. Lord, we pray for the W's as well as they continue to prepare to do your work 
on the other side of the world. We ask that you would pave the way for them and uh, cause all the, the uh, details to be worked out so that they can go and fulfill that ministry. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, calling us into your work and to be a part of your family. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A young Canadian soldier walks among the muddy trenches of the Belgian countryside in early May 1915. He looks down, and in spite of the filth and detritus scattered all around him on the battlefield, his eye is drawn toward a crumpled scrap of paper scribbled with black ink. He picks it up, and he reads, We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from flailing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. These lines penned by Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, a Canadian officer still in shock after burying one of his closest friends, a man by the name of Alexis, who had fallen during the Second Battle of Ypres, would go on to become the most well-known poem of the entire World War I era and serve as a rallying cry for Allied forces across a whole host of nations, including the United States of America. It's crisp Simplicity invites us to travel in our imagination to the vast meadow where, as the poem says, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row. It is a call to remember the dead, to silently stop and listen and wait and remember and learn the lessons that their deaths teach and live our lives accordingly. There's a very real sense in which that's what the apostle is doing here in this passage. He's calling us to remember, to stop, to pull back from the busyness of life and learn from the dead. Now, instead of inviting us to visit the sunny resting place of honorable men, he beckons us to return to the haunted, haunting boneyard in a howling wilderness. To learn a lesson not of courage and sacrifice, but of the gravity of and the consequences and the cost of unbelief. We've been studying 1 Corinthians for the last several months, and uh, some of you were there from the beginning, and some of you have joined us along the way. Perhaps you're joining us today for the very first time. And so I think for us to really get an understanding of where it is the Apostle Paul has us today in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I think it'd be good for us to kind of pull back and and, uh, get a picture of, of where we've been in this letter. If you can imagine in your mind's eye, 1 Corinthians is not just a random collection of advice that Paul's written to a specific church. It's kind of, it's it's actually a well-constructed, highly organized document, and it's written not just to the Corinthians, but as he says in chapter 1, to all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's written, in fact, to us. And if you can imagine, this letter is sort of like a mountain, and we're going to hike up the mountain and back down the other side, uh, and it's arranged that way. Uh, on the, uh, the, the beginning of the letter, uh, after an opening, and then at the end of the letter, the sort of the beginning and end, there's a major section on either side that has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 through 4 address the cross and Christian unity, and then chapter 15 the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the hope that that gives us in laboring uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you go up another uh, few thousand feet, I guess, up the hill, and the, the second section and the second to last section have to do with men and women in the human family and men and women in worship. That's chapters uh, 5 through 7, and then chapters uh, 11 through 14. And then this center section, the one that we're in right now, chapters 8 through 10, has to do with really what, where Paul wants to drive something home. He's, he's telling them, you are the temple of the living God. 
You are the sanctuary in which the Holy Spirit dwells, and yet that sanctuary is constructed on the streets of the city of man. You've opened up the windows, and you've allowed the stench of culture to sort of waft into that temple, and we need to stop that. And so in this central section, Paul is giving us counsel on how to live as Christians in a pagan world. That's chapters 8 through 10. And then Even within that center section, the peak of of the center of the center is that passage that we came to last week where Paul says, okay, here's what you're going to need to know in order to live as a Christian in a pagan world. You've got to tell your body no. You've got to discipline yourself. You've got to say no, just like an athlete says no to his body, and he, he disciplines and trains himself because he's going after the prize. Paul says you've got a much more valuable prize, and that's going to take discipline as well. It's all based on this foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but where he's going practically is you've got to live a disciplined life. And on either side of that peak, uh, he gives an example. We've seen Paul's example. That's the positive example. And then that pointed message, we've got to discipline our bodies, and then a negative example, and that's where we find ourselves today in chapter 10, the example of the children of Israel. Paul, in his example, has told us, my life is shaped like the life of Jesus Christ. I give up my rights. I give up the things that I feel are, uh, that, that I actually have coming to me because I'm all about as many people as possible coming to the the knowledge of the Savior. And that's just what Jesus did. He gave up his rights so that people might be saved. Paul says that's the example that you need to follow. And now he tells us, look at Israel. They did the exact opposite. So that's that's what we find here in chapter 10. That's our location on this sort of trail uh, up the mountain and back down again. We were at the peak last week, and now we're starting to come back down to this negative example. And it's for this reason that we now find ourselves standing with Paul on the edge of a desert. And I know I'm mixing metaphors, but bear with me. (laughs) But he brings us to the edge of this wilderness. The sun is beating down. The, The wind is whistling through the crags of stone. The sand is whipping up against our legs and stinging our skin. And as we shield our eyes and we look out across the expanse, we find that this desert is not empty, it's actually a massive grave, a boneyard in the wilderness. The bones of our fathers lie strewn about as far as the eye can see, hundreds of thousands of them. The preacher tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2, it's better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. Why? Well, this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And this is what Paul is inviting us to do. He's saying, remember the boneyard in the desert. I don't want you to be unaware, he says. And as we remember, as we lay it to heart, there are going to be three lessons that we learn from this passage from the ruin of the Israelite forefathers. First of all, their ruin, as we'll see, is a wonder to us. Their ruin, secondly, is a warning to us. And thirdly, their ruin offers wisdom to us. So notice with me in the first place from verses 1 through 5, their ruin is a wonder to us. What I mean by that is there's something about the Israelites' experience that is surprising, that is disconcerting, that is troubling, that we would not have otherwise expected. The Israelites enjoy the favor of God, and yet in the wilderness they fall. Notice the favor they enjoyed. Verses 1 through 2 show us that the children of Israel underwent a sort of baptism. They were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. What is Paul referring to when he says that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea? Well, think back to the passage that Renee read earlier in the service in the entire book of Exodus. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, God's covenant people are languishing in slavery. There's this wicked, oppressive ruler who is enslaving and oppressing them. He's killing their children. He's assaulting the covenant people of God. And what God had already promised in the book of Genesis is, hey, Abraham, anybody who curses you is going to be under my curse. And Pharaoh's doing that. And so God remembers his covenant with the the, the children of Israel, and he goes after Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies, and he rescues the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and then he brings them out into the wilderness. And the Bible tells us that 
they set out from Egypt and they begin to make their way toward a good land, a sort of new Eden, a a land that's flowing with milk and honey where they're going to enjoy the presence of the living God. And as sort of a down payment of the presence of God, he comes to them in this cloud-like pillar. It looks like a cloud during the day and like fire at night. And as you read through the narrative in the book of Exodus, it's clear that this pillar is a visible symbol of the very real spiritual presence of the Lord with his people. In other words, the children of Israel live in the presence of God, and then the pillar leads them to the banks of the sea. And in Exodus 14, their their backs are against the wall. Pharaoh is pursuing them with his armies. He regrets letting them go. And so he's after them, and he wants to bring them back into slavery, and they're, they're between the armies of Pharaoh and the sea, and God miraculously parts the waters of the sea, and they walk across on dry land through the sea, and they come safely to the other side. So what does that mean? Uh, the great floodwaters of the sea open up. They pass through the sea. What is that? That's a symbol of the destruction and the chaos of the judgment of God, because what happens is when the Israelites get to the other side, the armies follow them into the sea, and God's judgment falls on them, and those armies drown. And Paul says that experience, that pathway through the sea, was a baptism. You say, how is that? (laughs) How are they baptized in the cloud and in the sea? Well, if you think about it, that's exactly what it was. After all, what is baptism? It's a symbol of the wrath of God. The water, just like the waters of Genesis 1 and 2 before the world was uh, created with all the plants and the mountains and the the, uh, fish and the birds and the humans and the animals, uh, was under water. It was shapeless and empty. And when people sin in Genesis chapter 6, God brings it back to that shapeless state. He brings a global flood, and he judges humanity. So God's wrath is symbolized in these floodwaters, and Israel doesn't go around the flood. They go through it. So what Paul is saying is uh, they're saved through judgment. This is what baptism signifies. The old me is judged, plunged underneath the floodwaters of the wrath of God, and, 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 and I'm united with Christ who felt the wrath of God for me. And the new me is raised to walk in newness of life. So it's not that we're just escaping from judgment. We're actually passed through judgment and we're saved on the other side. So nobody can judge me anymore because I've already been through judgment. I've already been plunged underneath the flood of God's wrath in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that judgment is done. I've been baptized in that sense. And Paul says that's exactly what the Israelites went through. They went through the judgment of God's wrath. They were saved through judgment. And then that judgment fell on their enemies. And the children of Israel enjoyed this breathtaking privilege. Can you imagine being there and watching God save you and your family and destroy the satanic forces of those who hate you all in the space of a single day? Tremendous favor that God has shown them. So the Israelites underwent this sort of baptism, but they also kind of went through a pre-Christian form of communion. Look at verses 3 and 4. They all ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the rock, and the rock was Christ. You say, okay, well, what are you talking about, that they took communion in this pre-Christian form? Well, again, Renee read the passage for us earlier in the service. Uh, the, The Israelites are in the desert. There's nothing to eat. And so God, in his kindness, sends manna, this spiritual food, uh, miraculously that just appears on the ground every morning, and they are sustained by that meal for 40 years as they wander through the wilderness. What about the spiritual drink? Well, there are a couple times when the children of Israel, hundreds of thousands of people are there in the desert. There's nothing to drink. We can relate to that, I guess, to a point, right? Here in North Texas right now in the summer, And in two instances in particular, there's this rock, and Moses strikes the rock, and water gushes out, and the children of Israel are sustained by that fresh water that pours out of the rock. And so the manna is the spiritual food, and the water gushing out of that rock is spiritual drink, and and it's sort of like communion. I'm not making that up. Paul's the one that's making that connection. 
And, and he's not the first one to do it. Jesus is actually the one to connect the manna in the wilderness with his own body and blood. He says that in John chapter 6. He, he makes this connection uh, between the manna in the wilderness and the bread that comes down from the Father. And he says, the bread that I give for the life of the world is actually my flesh. So Jesus is the one who makes that connection, and here's what's happening. Paul, and Jesus before him, is observing what uh, my pastor uh, in Kentucky used to call a promise-shaped pattern in Scripture. It's a promise-shaped pattern. The Israelites pass through the sea at the beginning of their journey. They're baptized, and then Jesus is baptized in the sense that he's plunged underneath God's judgment when he goes to the cross. And then you and I, if we believe in Jesus and we pursue him in baptism, we are baptized, symbolically united with Jesus and passed through the judgment of the floodwaters of God's wrath and then raised to walk in newness of life. There's a pattern. It starts with the experience of the children of Israel. It goes through the life of Jesus. And then we follow that pattern as those who are in Christ. The Israelites eat manna in the wilderness. They drink water from the rock. By the way, in the original account, did you notice what Renee said? And I know I'm moving fast here, okay? But did you notice what she said? Uh, I am, tells Moses, I'm going to stand before you by the rock, and you strike the rock. So right there in the original text, this is God telling Moses, essentially, I am going to be struck so that the children, so that my children, my family might be sustained. And what happens in the life of the Lord Jesus? The rock, Christ, is struck. He's killed. He's crucified for the life of the world. This is for us. He comes and he says, I'm the true bread from heaven, and uh, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that meal symbolically sustains us as we ourselves are on this pilgrimage through the wilderness and we make our way toward the promised land where we'll live in the presence of God forever. This is a promise-shaped pattern that God is giving us not only in the pages of Scripture, but in the actual events in the lives of the people of God. Now, these are deep things. Uh, but it's exciting because what it tells us is that God has been working out this story from the very beginning, and it's all going somewhere. There is a day coming when we won't just gather symbolically around the table to celebrate the Lord's table, we'll gather at his real banquet table in the real new creation, and we will enjoy his unmitigated presence. We won't be looking with the eyes of faith. We will be looking with our real eyes and beholding the glory of God. It's going to happen. He's in control of the story. But one of the things that's remarkable and surprising about this is that Paul assumes that the Corinthians are following what he's saying when he makes this connection. He calls them our fathers. And what that tells me is Paul, when he stayed in Corinth for 18 months, and he was teaching them every week, probably multiple times a week, was constantly making those connections when he was with the Corinthian believers. So he's saying, your story is not a new thing in the sense of being separated from what God has already done in the world. You live, you exist in continuity with the people of God from time immemorial. You are part of God's plan. Do we look at ourselves as part of God's plan just at a different place on the storyline? The favor that the children of Israel enjoyed is analogous to the blessings of the new covenant of the people of God, the church. And, and, and so here's what's happening, guys. What's happening is there are some Corinthians who are saying, hey, I've been baptized. I've been plunged underneath the water of God's wrath. I take communion. I celebrate the Lord's Supper. That means I eat the flesh of Jesus and I drink his blood. And so there's something magical that happens that sort of protects me from judgment. And I don't have to worry about the way that I live because now I'm safe because of all these magical things that have taken place in my life. And so if I want to go to the idol temple, and enjoy a sacrifice because my family is there and I want to celebrate something with them, then I could do that. If I want to go to the idol temple and enjoy a temple prostitute, I can do that because I've already been baptized and I've already take the, I already take the, Lord, uh, the communion. So I'm safe. And Paul says, wait a second. You exist 
in continuity with the people of God from time immemorial. The children of Israel are your fathers. And guess what? They were baptized, in a sense. They took communion, in a sense. Nevertheless, verse 5, what does it say? Nevertheless, with some of them, God was not pleased, and they fell in the wilderness. So, they experienced God's favor, but they still fell. And Paul's saying, watch out. You better take it seriously, this experience that they've had, because that's the surprise. Even though they enjoyed the favor of God, they still fell. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, Corinthian believers, believers at Indian Creek Baptist Church, we need to wake up. We need to be aware. I don't want you to be ignorant of what's going on. You are living in the idolatrous city of man. There's nothing to be casual about. You want to go participate in the temple rituals? You want to eat in the dining rooms attached to the idol temples? You want to pretend like you're free to live like a heathen? Then you need to come with me. You need to go make a visit to the boneyard in the wilderness. And remember your forefathers, these people who were baptized in the cloud and in the sea, who ate the heavenly bread and drank the spiritual drink. Externally, they participated as members of the people of God, but it never got to their heart. And in spite of the fact that they enjoyed these blessings, they fell under judgment. You read through the first five books of the Bible, you you really ought to do that if you haven't done that. One of the things you'll come away with is this reality that God's mighty acts, his blessings fall on the people of God over and over and over and over again. And yet they reject it and they rebel. And one of the things that happens in those first five books of the Bible is there's just constant death as a result. Like there's thousands of people falling in the wilderness over and over again until there is literally an entire generation except for two guys within the space of 40 years that is wiped out and their corpses fall in the wilderness. You say, what happened to their favored place in the kingdom of God? They squandered it because on the outside they were enjoying God's blessings, but on the inside they really didn't worship God at all. It hadn't gotten to their heart. And one of the things that we need to understand today is that the God of the Bible, the God who made the world, is not a cosmic gramps who's easy to fool and easy to trick and who just wants us to go through the magic motions of getting baptized and taking the Lord's Supper without any kind of life change or heart worship. He's not like that. He will not be mocked. He's going to get the glory and he is going to communicate his holiness. So friends, here's what that means for us today. Did you know that you can be baptized and participate in the life of the community of God's people, the church, even taking the Lord's Supper and still, at the end of your life, fall under the judgment of God. It's true. Because what happens is, we go through all these motions, and we know on the inside, we're not really owning that. It's fake. And I I just want, I, I just wonder if in a room this size, if you're sitting there, and perhaps some of you are looking at me, and you're hearing my voice, and we're reading this passage together, and in your heart, you know that all this Christian stuff that you do is not real. It's not something you really own. And what Paul is saying is, be aware of the gravity of that. Look at what happened to your fathers. Don't worry about what everybody's going to say. Don't worry about what other people think. You need to get that settled. Is the Holy Spirit really in your heart? Uh, And maybe the Holy Spirit's making clear today that you've been going through the motions, but it's not really real to you. You've not really been born again. You're not really a Christian in your heart. And if that's true, if the Holy Spirit is going after you today, don't ignore it. Don't ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit because the ruin of the children of Israel is a wonder to us. It's a surprise to us. But secondly, notice from verses 6 through 11 that the ruin of the children of Israel is not just a wonder to us, it's a warning to us. It's a warning to us. Twice, Paul tells us in verse 6 and in verse 11 that these things took place as an example for us. Now, in the original language, that word 
example, that's translated example, is actually the word tupas. It's the word from which we get the, the word type. So what Paul is saying is these events in the life of the children of Israel are a type or an example or a pattern for us to learn from. And he says it's given to us as a warning so that we might not desire evil as they did. And then in verses 7 through 10, he offers four specific ways that the Israelites desired evil that the Corinthian believers would do well to avoid. And so he says in verse 7, you've got to learn from the children of Israel. Be warned, do not be idolaters. Do not be idolaters. In Exodus 32, we're told that Aaron the priest made an idol, a golden calf, and he sets up this golden calf. When Moses is up on top of the mountain, you remember this? And he says to the children of Israel, this is your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And they began to worship the idol. And, 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 it's, and we're told that they uh, had a big feast and they rose up to play. That is to have some kind of uh, immoral party in celebration of this idol. Have you ever wondered what was so attractive to the children of Israel that, that even after God had told them, don't worship idols, that they would go and do that anyway? And why was it that they worshiped this calf? I mean, that's kind of a weird thing to do, right? Bow down to an image of a calf. You don't feel, you probably did not wake up today and feel tempted, drawn in your spirit to bow down to a calf. Why did they do this? Well, it's possible, and I think it makes a lot of sense, why an ancient person living in an agrarian society would have worshipped a calf. Really, the, the calf is probably not a, the best word to translate this. It could be any kind of cow or heifer or a steer up to three years old, okay? So imagine a young steer in your mind. Why would you want to worship a god like that? Well, if you're living in the ancient world, it really makes a lot of sense. Here you've got an animal that is really powerful, but you can train it to do what you want it to do. You can turn it into a draft animal, and it'll pull the plow, it'll pull your wagon, and when you're done with it, you can set it in the pasture or in the stable, and you don't have to think about it for a while. And when you really don't want it anymore, you kill it and eat it. This is a perfect guy. Because what, what does it do? What does this calf do for me? It puts me on the throne. It's there for me. I get to be in charge. And so this is what the Israelites are tempted to do. They're, they're wanting to worship an idol because they want to be in control. They want to be the king or the queen. And the Corinthians are feeling the same way about their idol temples. They were motivated as well to, to participate in idolatry. If you wanted to be in Corinth uh, a part of an artisanal guild, uh, you were supposed to, in, in order to participate in that, you're supposed to acknowledge the God who happened to patronize that artisanal guild. Uh, if you wanted to make a deal, if you wanted to form a, a social relationship or a network, you would have to show your face in the dining room attached to the idol temple, and that was where you met people. That was where those deals were struck, and, and uh, contracts were signed, so to speak. So in other words, in, in a place like Corinth, idolatry was like the glue holding the Greco-Roman society together. And so the Corinthians were tempted to go to the idol temple and go through the motions, whether they believed it or not, because of the same reason that the Israelites liked to worship the golden calf. It, le it left them in control of their own life. They didn't have to depend on anybody else. They could, they could worship this idol and get something that they wanted from it and then leave it alone. Well, we're not really that different in the modern West, are we? We love to feel like we're in control. We love to refashion the God of the universe into a domesticated God. We love to form him in our image, to shape him after our desires. And we'll do whatever mental gymnastics are required in order to make sure that we have a seat at the socioeconomic table. We live in a materialistic, secular society, but we still worship idols. It's just that these are secular idols, and the demonic powers love it. They, they don't care whether we embrace uh, a humanistic worldview or whether we embrace an animistic worldview and bow down to actual statues. It doesn't matter to them as long as we are replacing the one true God with these false idols. If they are grabbing our attention. And Paul says, don't do it. 
beware. Do not be idolaters. Do not take something that God has made and put it in place of the one true God. Do not try to put yourself on the throne. He says, do not indulge in sexual immorality. By the way, sexual immorality and idolatry go together hand in hand. Uh, And we have plenty of sexual immorality in our world today. The Israelite men couldn't seem to help themselves. Uh, The king of Moab had seduced them by sending pagan women among them for them to indulge their carnal appetites. And, And what happened in the life of the children of Israel? They embraced idolatry. They embraced sexual immorality. And 23,000 fell in a single day. It wasn't stopped until Phineas the priest impaled a faithless Israelite and his pagan paramour in the act of immorality that the plague was stopped. God will not be mocked. You know, we like to think of God as nice, (laughs) but God's serious about his holiness. And he says, I don't want you to engage in sexual immorality. I don't want it. Of course, the Corinthians thought that they could follow Christ and visit temple prostitutes. He's already warned them about that, and now he reminds them of the fate of those who refuse to listen. You know, it's impossible to overstate just how far our culture has strayed from the biblical teaching on the topic of sexuality, and we've talked about that in this room over the last few months. Uh, We're in the temple of Christ. We're in Christ's church, and yet the, the stench of sexual sin hangs like a poisonous mist all around this sanctuary in the city of man. And, and it's like we're tempted to kind of throw open the shades and the shutters and say, let's let that stench come into the church, and we have to be on guard against it. Christ wants us to not be deceived. Remember the boneyard in the desert and don't go that way. Lean into the power of a pure affection for Christ. Rest in his plan for you. Listen, insist, friends, insist on the God-given teaching on sexuality that it is reserved for a covenant commitment in marriage between a man and a woman. Do not believe the lies of the world. Verse 9, Paul says, don't put Christ to the test. The Israelites, that's exactly what they did. They tried to put their creator God on trial. They watched him care for them over and over and over again, and yet they were constantly saying, I'm not sure if God is strong enough to take care of me. Is, is the Lord really among us or not? What was that? that? They were trying to put God to the test. They, for their faith, faithlessness and their rebellion, they're destroyed by serpents. Uh, That's not a scary story meant to give you the chills. It's a terrifying experience of the people of God who decided to put the Lord to the test and they were destroyed because their external participation in the covenant people of God had not reached their heart and they were putting God to the test. Paul says, don't put Christ to the test. He says, do not grumble. In verse 10, here's what the Israelites were doing. Do you remember what they said? They said, listen, Moses, if walking, if if following this pillar of cloud, living in the presence of the living God, if what that means is we have to do without and we have to trust God for our provision every single day, if what that means is I'm not in control anymore, I would actually rather go back to Egypt and be a slave so that I can enjoy the things that I want to enjoy and without worrying about what God thinks. This is what the Israelites were saying. They were essentially saying, I would rather be a slave than than be free and follow the one who made me and redeemed me and bought me out of slavery. And this is what the Corinthians were tempted to do. They had been bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had testified that Jesus is good, that Jesus is God. They had renounced Satan. They had called out to him for forgiveness. They had uh, believed that they were a part of the family of God. And yet, when they were called upon to go through the tests and the trials of life, it was like they were tempted to look back at their old life and say, you know, I like following Jesus, but I'd rather live the way that I used to live. This is what he means when he says, don't grumble. Don't go back to the old way of life. Don't go back to worshiping in the idol temple. And he says, some of you are doing exactly what the the, uh, Israelites 
were doing. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were without hope. You were without God. You were destined for wrath, and God saved you. How can you go back? When the children of Israel did that, God wasn't going to mess around. He sent a destroying angel, and every single one out of hundreds of thousands from that generation fell in the wilderness, except for two guys. So what Paul is saying is, we better remember the boneyard in, in the desert. Excuse me. The Corinthians had these questions about meat offered to idols, and Paul, he, he's told them, he said, I give up my rights because I want to be on mission, and I want to see as many souls come to Christ as possible, but there's actually more to it than that. If you start flirting with idolatry, your very soul may be in danger. This is serious. The ruin of the Israelites, that's a wonder to us, and it's also a warning to us today. We need to take stock. But in the third place, notice with me from verses 12 and 13 that their ruin not only is a wonder to us and a warning to us, but their ruin offers wisdom to us today. Verse 12, notice what Paul says. He begins it by saying, therefore. In other words, what he's about to do is take all of verses 1 through 11 and draw some inferences or some conclusions from what he's already said. And he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You've been listening to me talk, and you might have had a thought like this pop into your head. What, what, what about, Jake, what about once saved, always saved? I, I thought that once you make a profession of faith and you say the sinner's prayer, and you call out to Christ and you say, I need to be forgiven, please save me. I, I thought, that's it. You're good after that. Well, there's a lot of confusion around this issue, and uh, there are a lot of different things that theologians will say regarding the issue of security and whether you are once saved, always saved. Some people would say, uh, hey, you can be born again, you can be regenerate in your heart, but that's not really enough to get you to heaven. And what Paul's saying is, God's done so much, and you have to add on to that with your obedience, right? Have you ever heard people say something like that or imply that? Uh, God gives you a little spiritual vitamin, and, and uh, when you get baptized, it, it kind of charges you with uh, some spiritual energy. And when you take the Lord's Supper, that's like a, a spiritual supplement. But you've got to be the one to obey, and that obedience will help you earn a spot in the kingdom and you won't fall like the Israelites. I don't think that's what Paul's saying at all. Uh, because in a lot of other places, he says, if you are in Christ, you are already justified. You already have received a verdict on your life, and that verdict is not guilty. You are righteous in God's eyes. That's done. It's finished. It's over. Christ has done it. You're already justified. So we can't understand Paul to mean here that you're not quite justified. So other theologians would say something like this, and this is how I remember being taught, although it's possible my memory is wrong. Uh, some would say something like this. Hey, if you've made a profession of faith, you're saved, period. If you've prayed the sinner's prayer, you're saved, period. But what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 10 is you might end up going to heaven and then you don't have as many rewards as some other people there in heaven. And so you better watch out because you'll be in heaven and it's going to be awesome and it's going to be great, but you just won't have as many rewards as the next guy. I don't think that's what Paul's saying either. Uh, it seems like he's saying, watch out or you are going to experience judgment like the Israelites did. You're going to be destroyed and you're going to be in hell. And so there's a third type of theologian who would say, well, yeah, you're justified. There's nothing left for you to do. Christ has already bought your salvation for you, but you can choose to give it up. You can lose what you already have. But it seems to me that if it's up to me to keep it, I'm not going to keep it. I've got to have somebody else keep it for me. And so here's what I think Paul is saying. If you compare similar passages, I think you'll see this is consistent with the witness of the New Testament. I think he's saying something like this. You Corinthians were all baptized, and you all take the Lord's Supper, and you're part of the church externally. But if you think that means that you're standing tall, and that you're safe, and that you can live 
however you want to live, disregarding the commands of Christ, then you need to think again. If you think that you're standing, take heed lest you fall. Because real believers, folks, real believers actually believe. Real followers of Christ actually follow Christ. Not perfectly, but they actually do it. People who have really repented actually have a changed life. And so what he's saying is, you, if you think that you're standing there and you're safe because you've been baptized and because you take the Lord's Supper, but you can go do whatever you want to do, then you, friend, you've got to watch out. Because what may be true on the outside, what may have taken place on the outside, may have not made any change at all on the inside. You may not really be in Christ. So that's the first entailment. The first nugget of wisdom that he offers, he says, if you're prideful and if you're presuming upon some kind of transaction where you go through the motions but your life isn't any different, then you're going to end up just like those bones in the desert. So take heed. Friends, we need to heed that warning. Notice the second entailment that he gives in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words... Your situation is not the exception to the rule. Your situation is not the exception to the rule. There were probably Corinthian church members who were saying, look, Paul, listen, you're a nice guy. You're really smart. But you don't understand my situation. I'm an important person here in the city of Corinth. If I don't show up at the idol temple, people are gonna, they're going to say things. They're going to talk. Paul, you don't understand my situation. My whole family worships at that temple. If I don't show up on that particular holiday and join in with the feast, there's going to be all sorts of drama, and the family's going to be talking, and my grandmother, she's, she's only got a few years left to live. She's going to be so upset. You don't understand my situation. And Paul says, listen, it doesn't matter what your situation is. Nothing takes place in your life that's not common to other people in the world. Your situation is not the exception to the rule. And so what he's saying is God's not taken by surprise by your situation. He isn't up in heaven saying, oh, wow, I didn't think that would happen. I hope he figures it out. What that means is that in your situation, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God's given you the ability to obey. And he's given you the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to believe. I didn't say God's giving you, he won't give you more than you can handle. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you're, you're tested. Your faith is being tested, and I'm going to give you the ability to come through that test with real faith. No temptations taking you, but what is common to man. So that means, Indian Creek, just because you're living in the 21st century doesn't mean you're any different from anybody else. Just because technology is changing our world doesn't mean you're different from anybody else. God knows about it, doesn't take him by surprise, and if you choose to depend on him and prayerfully obey, you'll find that you can do it in God's power. Obey Christ, flee from idols. Your situation is not the exception to the rule. And here's what's so precious about this text. This is, you don't miss this, because here's what he leaves us with. You say, Jake, I understand what you're saying. This is serious stuff. I don't want to end up like those people in the desert. I guess I've got to try harder. And Paul says, no, that's not where you need to land in your thinking. Here's where you need to land. God is faithful. God is faithful. Let me tell you what that means. That means that when God makes a promise in his word, he keeps the promise. That means when, when God says that it's finished, it's finished. That means that just like he said in chapter 1 to the Corinthians, it's God who is going to keep you and keep you firm and strong to the end. He's going to be the one that takes you into the promised land and over the Jordan River. He's going to be the one who takes all those who belong to his flock and he's going to lead you safely into those green pastures. He is the shepherd who cares for his sheep. He's the one who goes out, who leaves the 99 safe in the fold and he goes after that one. And maybe you're the one this morning. Maybe you're the one who says, I can't do it. I cannot do it. And what you need to know is that God is faithful. 
He is faithful, and it's on the basis of the fact that he is faithful that you can say no to the example of the Israelites, that you can say no to unbelief, that you can say no to idolatry, that you can say no to the desires of the flesh and yes to following Jesus Christ. God is faithful. And he's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he provides a way of escape. And so, friend, here's what I'm saying today. Even if you cannot see it, even if you don't understand what the way out is, you have a God who is faithful, who will keep his promises, and who will keep you to the end. And that's where we need to land today. That's the lesson of these bones in the wilderness. It's that we need to trust God because of his faithfulness. Would you pray with me now? Father, I want to thank you for your faithfulness shown in the lives of the children of Israel and the lives of the Corinthian believers and in our lives today. Just uh, this past week, so many uh, believers have testified to me of the reality that you didn't let them go, that they wanted to go their own way, but you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, reminded them, no, come back to me, you're mine. And Father, I wonder this morning if there's somebody in this room that has been straying from from you in some specific way, maybe presuming upon a profession of faith, presuming upon an identity with as a member of a church or as somebody who's been baptized or takes the Lord's Supper or whatever, but it hasn't hit uh, internally and it hasn't changed the heart. And today you're going after them and reminding them that you are faithful. So, Father, I pray that you would give each one of us the humility to say, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, I'm going to trust and obey. It doesn't matter that my situation seems exceptional, I'm going to trust and obey. It doesn't matter that I don't see the way out, I'm going to believe in the faithfulness of God, even though I myself have been faithless. And so, Father, I pray that in this moment you would protect your people from the work of the enemy, that you would work powerfully to bring about the obedience of faith in all who are here today. And, Father, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me for just a moment?